Matthew 1, when you think birth of Jesus, most people think Mary, shepherds, wise men, angel. Very few people think Joseph, and that's probably to be expected. He actually doesn't say anything. There's no recorded words of Joseph in the Bible. He appears in Matthew 1 and 2 briefly, a little bit in Luke as well. Um, Jewish marriage, you normally have a guy maybe in his uh, early to mid-30s marrying a girl who's a teenager, 13, 14, 15. That was 100% acceptable. You have this huge age gap. So most likely, Joseph was dead before Jesus began his public ministry at 30. We know he was alive when Jesus was 12. No indication that he lived very much long after that. Joseph kind of fades into the background. Uh, We talk all the time about doing your deal, that God has put good works in front of all of us, and he desires for us to do those things. Most of us don't necessarily connect with Mary on that level. We don't think that God is calling us to be the mother of God. That's... Our our thing is small. It seems trivial or inconsequential in a lot of ways. We don't necessarily relate to these big, grandiose words that God gives to Mary. I think Joseph maybe has something to say to us. Even though he blends in the background, we don't know anything that he ever said. We know several things that he did in his just uh, regular, I'll call it, his regular obedience had cosmic implications. And so we want to look at four dreams Joseph had in the course of a handful of years, how he responded, and what, if anything, that can say to us. So we're going to start uh, chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, And said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So a little background. Three stages in a Jewish marriage. There's engagement. That was normally when you were a kid. Either your parents or professional matchmaker would put you together. Betrothal, that's where Mary and Joseph were. That was 10 to 12 months before you actually consummated the marriage. You were legally husband and wife. You did not live together and you did not sleep together. The only way out of that stage was through a divorce. You didn't break the engagement the way we do where you know, the girl just gives the ring back or whatever. You actually had to get a divorce. And if somebody slept with somebody... During that time, it was a sin. If you slept with your fiancé, is what we'll call it, it was a sin because you weren't yet officially married. If you slept with somebody outside of that, other than your fiancé, it was adultery. And then there was marriage, which has happened after you consummated the relationship. So they're betrothed. If you look in Luke, this angel Gabriel appears to Mary, says you're going to have this son, Jesus. And the, the way it reads, she seems to immediately go to visit her relative Elizabeth who lives uh, a little way off she comes back three months later and she's pregnant and Joseph being a righteous man that is zealous for the law he decides to divorce her that's what he's supposed to do quietly that's his compassion he could have publicly exposed her to shame and disgrace technically uh, she should have been stoned there's not really a lot of indication that people were actually stoned for adultery but that was the Old Testament penalty for that, but rather than kind of push this legally and publicly, compassionately, Joseph says, I'm going to divorce her 
quietly. And again, that was the right thing to do. He knew he had not slept with her. Pretty difficult to buy the no really God is the father defense at that point. Most of us don't go for that. So the assumption is naturally that she's had an affair and that's the result. An angel appears to him in a dream, says, no, really, God is the father. You need to be the legal father of this son. You will not be the biological father of this child. And then Joseph agrees, brings her into his home, and they kind of move on from there. Before I get too much into Joseph, I'm going to take what I'm going to call a professional digression. You might call it a rabbit trail, but it's not. So have you ever heard of the fundamental attribution error? Have you ever heard of that? Here's the definition. So fundamental attribution error says this. You and me are supposed to meet, me and Peter are supposed to meet tomorrow at 1130 for lunch. He's 15 or 20 minutes late. And what I say is, Peter, he is lazy. He procrastinates. He must have, he's got a terrible memory. He forgot. He's standing me up. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't like, I just, my assumption is he's late because of some negative characteristic in him. Because of some bad motive or some ne- ne- negative characteristic. I'm 15 minutes late. It's because somebody popped into my office right before I walked in the door. I got caught by a train. I had every intention of being on time, but things just didn't come together the way they should have. See? Those are the two, those are the differences. Fundamental attribution error. I assume the worst about someone else. Same behavior. I give myself the benefit of the doubt. I extend grace to myself, and I jump to the worst conclusion about someone else. Brutal if you're married. Terrible in a marriage. Honey, will you cut the grass while I take while I go run to the grocery store? Sure, I'll cut the grass while you run to the grocery store. A couple hours later, pulls back in the driveway, grass hasn't been cut. Lazy, you've been watching those Georgia Bulldogs or whatever, you know, it's immediate jump to the worst possible reason why the grass hasn't been cut. For all you know, I threw out my back folding clothes for you. Could have been. You don't know what happened. I might have been rescuing a little kitten from a tree and giving it back to a little old lady as I was helping her cross the street. You don't know how all of those things, you don't know. But you come in the door and you're already 10 out of 10. And you know how you ask that question? It's not, hey, I noticed the grass wasn't cut. What happened? It's not that at all. You're already boiling and you've already assumed the reason it didn't get cut is because of some negative characteristic in me or because of some evil motive in me. And it creates fights that just, they don't need to happen at all. It happens in marriages all the time. I think for us, at least as fundamentally, it happens within our community. I think one of the things God wants to do in Marietta is he wants to restore true community, genuine relationships. Superficial is super easy where we live. You can connect to people superficially very easily in Marietta, i found. What's difficult is to develop genuine relationships. There's fear. There's a lot of guardedness. There's walls. Uh, there's hiding. And a lot of that is because people gossip. And they're afraid, if I'm going to let you in, then I'm going to find, I'm going to hear about it from three other people. You're, you're not safe. I'm not safe. And so we create these little enclaves within our own lives that we don't let anybody in because the fear is if we if I do it's going to wind up in the around town section of the Marietta Daily Journal that's where it's going to be and so we have this uh, myriad of superficial relationships and very few genuine ones if you're a gossiper stop 
to quit. You're talking about someone who's been created in the image of God. You're running them down. If you're a parent, you know how you feel when people talk about your kids. He's the father of all of us. So how do you, it doesn't work as a Christian. But for many of us, it's not so much that we gossip, it's that we hear it. We're just, you're at a birthday party or wherever you are and you hear these kind of things and you only have a couple of options. You can either absorb it and you feel like you've got to go take a shower because you've heard all of this stuff and you, just, you don't know what to do with it. For some people, you know, it's uh, you're at the party and they say, you know, I saw her and she had the kids in the back of the car and they weren't wearing seatbelts and they were going through McDonald's and you know that they, they have partially hydrogenated chicken there and that kills kids. I think she's, she wants to kill her children. That's what she wants to do. I saw, you should have seen the look on her face when she drove through. And she didn't order anything for herself. So you know that means that she, she's trying to get them. And she start moving in this direction. And you hear this. And you think, well, what am I supposed to do? You can't argue with stupid. And so it's, you, can't, you can't go back at them that way. Your mom told you that. You can't go back at them in the same way they come at you. It's a waste of time and energy. I don't do judo, but from what I understand, it's redirecting energy. So do that. They come at you with all of this negative. Don't absorb it. It'll make you feel nasty. And don't fight it. It'll wear you out. Just redirect it. You're coming at me with all of this negative, and I'm just going to redirect that into something positive, into something creative. It's the fun to, Don't assume the worst. You know what? Sometimes I... When my kids are going nuts, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to stick a piece of partially hydrogenated chicken into their mouth. And then they stop talking. And they stop screaming. It's, just, it's not that I want to kill them. It's that I'm trying to not kill them. And making them be quiet helps for me sometimes. It could be a treat for them. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why somebody eats McNuggets. Other than killing someone. And you say that to her or him. But, but you know, you know I, I saw her husband, and he was eating by himself. Family men never eat by themselves unless there's something going on in that house. I think their family's falling apart. She's trying to kill the kids, and he's trying to leave. And then, again, you, you, don't, you don't have to go head on to that. You, it could be that he had a meeting, and he was just running late. It happens to me all the time. I got a meeting at 5.30 and 6.30. The easiest thing to do is go eat by myself and get a slice of pizza. What you could do in those settings, and this, I promise, will get you off the gossip grapevine quicker than anything else. What you say is, you know what? It's obvious that you're very concerned about this family. I think we should pray for them, and you can start. You know so much about what's going on. It would be wonderful. You dial, I'll hang up. And then you just close your eyes, and you see. What I promise you, you do it twice, they will never call you again. They won't. Fundamental attribution error. It kills relationships. Natural for Joseph to jump to this conclusion that Mary had committed adultery. And his response is what any righteous Jew, that was the, that was the response. He's actually a compassionate and righteous Jew. He went beyond the letter of the law to say, let me do this privately and quietly. An angel appears, says, don't do it. And he does something which costs him a great deal. He says, okay. His obedience is costly for us. It might not mean a whole lot for somebody to say we're righteous. It was a huge deal for a Jewish man to be righteous. He had, Joseph had spent 28 or 29 or 30 or 32 years, whatever it was, cultivating this relationship. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean he was creating a facade. I mean he was 
He was zealous for the law. He kept the law. He honored the law. He was seen in his community as a righteous man, which is a good thing. And he willingly gave all of that up out of obedience to this angel, this word from God. And again, can you imagine him telling his friends, no, really, God's the father. How does that play? As a righteous man, either Joseph needs to hold her accountable for committing adultery, or Joseph is saying, it was me. I'm the father, and then he's committed a sin as well. He's had sex outside of marriage. Either way, it looks like he's violated this law that he's kept for so many years. It cost him something, and the same thing will be true for us. I don't think often that obedience is truly costly. There's four, there's five, there's six times in your life when God's going to ask you to do something, and you're actually going to have to give up something that's uh, precious to you, that means something to you. Usually, I don't think obedience is costly, but there's, again, four or five or six times where it will be. And in those moments, it's an issue of trust. Do I trust God enough to obey him, even though it's going to cost this thing that is very precious to me, something that I've invested in heavily, something that I've cultivated, something that I cherish? In a lot of ways, am I willing to am I willing to lose this in order to say yes to him? Chapter two, when they had gone, that's the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So obedience, it can be costly. Occasionally, it will be. Obedience, expectation from God, is obedience will always be quick. Joseph replies or responds in the moment. This idea, it says Herod is going to, the idea behind that is Herod is on the verge of, he's about to start searching for these kids. Joseph didn't have a lot of time. And so he packed up Mary and Jesus, and they left. For Egypt, Those of you who are parents, you may have said to your children, slow obedience is disobedience. The gap between when you say, get ready to go, and they actually get ready to go, that's a state of disobedience. If it's five minutes or ten, they've been disobeying you for that stretch of time. And the same thing is true with the Lord. When we hear, forgive, the weeks or the months or the years that pass between I, when I recognize that word is for me, that is for me, and when I actually follow through and forgive, I'm living in a state of disobedience. We say before, God doesn't give suggestions. They're directives, they're commands, and he expects us to respond to them once we recognize, hey, that is for me. Love God, love people. It's broken down a lot of different ways in the New Testament. Forgive, extend grace, extend mercy, be compassionate, be patient. Don't keep a record of wrongs. All of those things are directed towards us. That's the daily obedience that he requires of us. And the expectation from him is we will do it once quickly. Just like, again, those of you who are parents, those of you who have people who work for you, the expectation is once they recognize what your wishes are for them, what you're asking them to do, you expect them to do it. It's an issue of honoring God. When your children obey you, it's a recognition that they honor and respect the position you have in their life as father or mother. And when we honor God, it's the same thing. It's a recognition that he's the king. He's the Lord. He's our father. He knows better than we do. I, we can't always see how things are going to come together. And I I'm honoring you by obeying even when I can't see this picture. Even when it doesn't make sense to me, I'm honoring the fact that you are God and I am not. 
by obeying quickly. There's a disclaimer here. Single guy on this side of the room during ministry time looks over at single girl on this side of the room and says, she's, she's it for me. I'm, and as sure as you know your name, you feel like she's the one. Do not propose at the end of the service. Don't ask her for her name first. Sometimes on the big things, and this is rare. I mean, how, how often do you get life-altering direction or revelation from God? It's not every day, but it is occasionally. We have, we hit those forks or those, sometimes we're not even looking for it, and there's this thing that's kind of dropped into our lap that is life-altering. And in those moments, sometimes we have a tendency to jump straight to the last step, and it creates all this shrapnel in our life. On those major things, take, obey the first step, quickly. I feel like God's called me to be a missionary to fill in the blank country. Don't get on a plane tomorrow. Prepare. You can obey that quickly without buying a ticket. There are plenty of things that you can do between now and actually buying a ticket that will allow you to be fruitful when you get there. The worst thing you can do is jump on a plane tomorrow. So again, that's those are occasional. Again, how often do you have that type of life-altering revelation dropped into your lap. But it does happen, and when it does, I think the worst thing we can do is jump straight to the last step. What I'm talking about are the general, or just the daily things that we hear from the Lord, the way he leads us. We've been doing this summer series on being led by the Spirit. Those are the, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday obedience. You obey that type of stuff quickly. You don't hesitate. You just put it into practice. You do what God says, and as you do, he'll give you more direction. The big, major pieces, I would say you need to figure out what's the first step for me and how do I obey that first step. You know the difference between discernment and stalling. And if you're in that mode where there's a directive on the table for you, you know the difference between saying, you know, I'm trying to really figure out if this is for me or if you're just wasting time. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life or dead, that was dream number three. Here's dream number four. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he, li- he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it's fulfilled what was said through the prophet. He will be called a Nazarene. So Joseph goes to most likely a place called Alexandria, a city called Alexandria in Egypt. It's about a 300-mile walk. And then sometime between two weeks and probably seven months later, he, another angel appears, says, go back. And as, when he gets back, has another dream that says, here, go to this place, Nazareth, and says. So all told, it's about a 700-mile round trip. That's, like, that's here to Destin and back. Jesus was the son of God. He's two years old. He still has those little bitty stumpy legs. And so that's a long walk with a two-year-old. They weren't on donkeys. They weren't on horses. They didn't have you know, nothing. They're walking 300 miles round trip. It's hot. There's no restrooms. There's no rest stops. There's bandits on the way. And he's doing all of this as he's led by these dreams. I love my wife dearly. And it sa- I'm not the easiest guy in the world to be married to for sure. However, we do not pack the same way at all. We have a massive car. It's as big as a small apartment. And we have this thing that we put on top of our car that's also very large. And if we're gone for one day, it doesn't matter how long we're gone, both of those things are completely full. 
Y'all seen that uh, great stuff foam? It just kind of expands to whatever the, uh, that's what she does with packing. However much room I give her, she's just going to fill it. So if we had a bike with a milk crate on the back, she could make it work. But she has more than that. She has a small apartment with the top with something on the top. And so it takes me about three days to pack our car to be gone for about three days. It's a one-to-one ratio. And I'll start packing all of this stuff. And I fill up the back. And we, ha- we do have a decent number of children. We have four kids. And so they take up some space. And we're planning everything around them. And I'm putting things up, up in the top. And what I'm telling you, we are on Polk Street every time. And what does she say? Tell me what she says. Absolutely. The bathtub. I don't know what else we can put in the car. Everything that is not furniture or an appliance is in our car. And she forgot something. I promise they have water there, honey. We don't need to pack it. We do, we pack water. It tastes different up here or something. I don't know. She's wonderful. And she knew I was going to tell that story, so you don't have to feel like I'm not gossiping. Um. I'm thinking of Joseph in the middle of the night, get up and walk 300 miles. Okay? Wake up your wife. We got, we got to go. What? We've got to go. Why? I had a dream. We've got to go. Okay. Get the baby. I don't know how much stuff they had. And go for who knows how long. They get settled for some weeks, no more than six or seven months in Egypt. Honey, what? We got to go. Where? Home. We just got here. I know. There was an, I had another dream. We've got to go home. I'm tired of your dreams. We've got to go. Okay. Pack them up. Walk 300 miles. You get to where you're going, Bethlehem, wherever that is. Honey, what? I had another dream. We've got to go. What? We've we got to go. Where? Naz- Nazareth. What? What's there? Nothing is there. That's why we're going. It's 100 miles. Okay. I mean, 700 miles in less than a year with a two-year-old walking. All because you have dreams. Obedience is almost always inconvenient. It's rarely costly. It's almost always inconvenient. And honestly, that's why we don't do it. We don't do it because it's a pain. It's inconvenient. It doesn't fit with our plans. I don't want to have to pack up all my stuff and move to Egypt. And then as soon as I get everything situated, pack up all my stuff and move back to Judea. And as soon as I get there, pack up all my stuff and move to Galilee. No. Your God, didn't you know that guy was going to be the king when you had the third dream? Why didn't you go ahead and say, we could have at least gone straight, saved a leg. Nope, you got to do both. And for us, that's where we live in this place, where obedience is almost always inconvenient. I won't necessarily say difficult, although it can be at times, but it's almost always inconvenient because it doesn't fit with the direction that we're walking. And so we don't obey. And we sometimes have this romantic notion that in these costly moments, when it really counts, we're going to say yes. Our track record is we don't do the things that are inconvenient, but when it really counts and it's really costly and there's a gun to my head and it's, it's deny or not, I'm not going to. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to say yes in the costly moments. It's not true. If my track record is I say no in the little things, you can guarantee I'm going to say no in the big. And if the track record is I've said yes in the little things, then when those costly moments, the three, four, five, six times in my life, that come where it's, this is going to cost you. You're going to have to put something on the table that you hold very dearly. This is uprooting and moving to a new place. This is changing an entire career track. This is adding 
three kids to your family when you think the rest of yours are in college and you're almost done. That type, you're not going to say yes to that if you haven't said yes to the dailiness of the inconvenient things that God asks of you. It's not a heavy deal, it's just reality. The choices that we make on Tuesday and Thursday and in November, all of those things form and shape us. So when the costly moments come, when the pivot points in our life, our life, our life come, we're already postured in such a way that we can respond obediently and positively. Joseph obeyed in the small things, and it had cosmic implications. What does it say? First dream. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Second dream, and so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet. Dreams three and four, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. His obedience fulfilled prophecies that were spoken hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. All he knew was he was moving all the time. He took a he took his betrothed into his home. It cost him his reputation. He moved to Egypt. He turned around and went back to Judea, and he wound up in Nazareth, someplace he never wanted to be, never had any indication. That's what. That's where he was going to raise a family. He, he does it all because he keeps having these dreams. And he just says yes. And the drop, the backdrop, the perspective of God is all of this happened to fulfill what was spoken long ago by these prophets. We talk again all the time about kind of doing our deals. And you may feel like whatever God has for you, it's trivial, it's inconsequential. It doesn't make a difference. What God does is he weaves the personal obedience of Bill together with the personal obedience of Bernie, with the personal obedience of David. And he works something much larger than that. Second, 1 Corinthians 2 says the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. That's, he's the only one who knows the mind of God. So the Spirit knows what God is doing. And as we're led by the Spirit, we're all individually cooperating with this grand design that we can't see. We never get the wide-angle perspective, I think. Hardly ever. I've never seen it. It's, it's close-ups. It's one step at a time. You tend your little plot, and you tend your little plot, and you tend your little plot, and at some point we look up and God's got the whole community covered and is doing something that's grander than we could ever imagine. But it gets back to our individual acts of obedience. You saying on Monday at Brassfield and Gory, I'm, yes, I'm going to be faithful today. I'm going to obey even if it's inconvenient today. And as you do that, and everybody else kind of does their part at Paulding County High School or wherever you happen to be, God weaves all of that stuff together to accomplish these cosmic purposes that he has for us. And it doesn't matter if you're 12 or if you're 82. If you're alive, then it matters. It matters until you die. Your obedience matters to what God is doing in our community. A couple of things as we close. I had two two ways we can go. One, if there's an open directive, I'm going to use that for lack of a better word, on the table for you. If you know there's something that God has asked of you and you haven't yet responded, I want to give you a chance this morning to say, I'm, I'm going to obey. Maybe it wasn't quick. That's okay. You repent. It gets fixed just like that. There's forgiveness for that slow disobedience. You don't worry about that. You just make a choice today to obey. Whether it's inconvenient or costly, my encouragement to you is to say yes. When I was walking in this morning, I had this a uh, couple of verses kind of running through my head. Second Corinthians 6, 2. Today is the day of salvation. Three times in Hebrews 3 and 4, um, the writer of Hebrews says, don't harden your hearts like you did in the desert. When you hear his voice, don't harden 
your heart. And so I want to hold both of those things together. I want to say today is the day of salvation. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. We see, we, we glossed over that very quickly, that this, this son whose father is God and whose mother is Mary, he holds together the human and the divine. He's 100% God. He is sufficient to be your Savior. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's created everything that we see. He's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world because he never sinned. He can take your sin upon his shoulders and he is fully man. In Hebrews it says he was tempted in every way like us and yet he didn't sin. You've heard a thousand times God loves you enough to die for you. God also loves you enough to go through puberty for you. Everything that you've experienced in life he's experienced. He's, he literally has walked in our shoes, and if you find yourself this morning struggling through something, he's Emmanuel, God, creator of everything, with us, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. God, again, King of kings, Lord of lords, who holds the world in his hand, who spoke in everything that seen and unseen came into existence, and he is with us, dwelling within our hearts. So this morning, what do you need? Where do you need saving this morning? Is it You've never said yes to Jesus. You need to be rescued from your sins. Is it something physically you need to be rescued? Is it relational? Where do you need, is it something with your career? Where do you need to be saved this morning? You need God over everything with you, closer to you than a brother, a shepherd of your soul. Let's pray. Lord, we've been saying we want to believe you for the instantaneous and trust you through the process. We want to be people who hold both of those things in tension. And this morning, God, as we enter into a time of ministry, we want to believe you for the miraculous or supernatural that you can speed up things, that you can do in two minutes what should take months or even years, that you can move circumstances, that you can, you can fix stuff, and that you can do it quickly. You don't have to. And we're not going to take our ball and go home if you don't. But God, we're asking you to move in that way here in the lives of the men and women who are gathered in this place. God, you know the places where we need saving this morning. And I pray as we call out to you that you would do what you do so well, which is come and meet with us. And God, if there are any here today who, who they don't know you, God, I pray that they would, they would hear you, not me, they would hear you speaking to their heart, saying, come home. I've got a place for you at the table. Just come home. Don't worry about washing your hands. Don't worry about, don't worry about any of that. You just come and sit down, and we'll take it from there. God, if there's any here today who are persisting in disobedience, there's something on the table, and they can't say yes. God, I pray for your grace to do so this morning, to take that step of trust, of honor of loving you enough to say yes in Jesus name amen you guys can stand up we're going to close with a little bit of ministry we'll have ministry teams up front if that's you 